Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Welcome to another edition of Cinelit, a slightly different edition of Cinelit this time around. Usually we pick a topic and deep dive into the history and the films um, of classic Hollywood cinema or French cinema or horror cinema or any other cinema. But this time it's slightly different because our man in the field, Daryl Buxton, has been out and about at film festivals, which normally is not such an unusual thing. But after two years of COVID pandemic problems, it feels like a novelty. So we thought we would do a little horror on sea festival report as Daryl has just returned from the first weekend of that festival. Hello, Daryl. How are you? Hi, Adam. It's great to be back from uh, sunny South End. Sunny um, South End. Back, back home where I belong. <laughs> well, as far away from the sea as possible yeah, they, in Derby. They, they let me out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cool. So yeah, so you, we, you you've been to the Horror on Sea Festival this last weekend. Yeah, it's a festival that runs over two weekends, but you've just been to the first weekend this this weekend. It's a festival that you've been to many times before. How, how long has it been going now? Twenty thirteen was the first one. So okay. and then obviously there was a break for pandemic reasons last year, and they've managed to get the festival off the ground again this year. Um, I'm not sure when the podcast's going to be going out, but. It runs over two weekends, so it was the 14th to the 16th of January, which is the weekend I attended, and we're actually recording this on the 21st of January, and in Southend, in about 10 minutes' time, they're going to be kicking off with weekend number two, which runs from today, Friday, Jan the 21st, through to Sunday. So, so yeah, they've got two full weekends of, of uh, programming there. Cool, lovely. So it's 2013. So this was set up by Paul Cockgrove. Yeah. So I met Paul Cockgrove many years ago when he came to Metro Cinema with yeah. his short film with Ingrid Pitt. Green Fingers. Green yeah, Fingers, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So so what what was the genesis of this festival? Do you know? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, tell you a bit about my history with Paul. Um, I've, I've been going to the uh, Gothic Film Society in London for, for many years, since the mid-80s. And Paul was one of the people I met there when I first started going. I met him through through other friends. And, uh, yeah, we, we got chatting and we got on and we realised we, we like the same kind of thing as basically old old vintage horror movies, which is what the gothic was all about. So, you, you know, you're sort of chatting in the pub afterwards in London and uh, we've been sort of mates uh, on and off ever since. I don't see a lot of Paul, but uh, we always get on really well when, when we're together, you know. 
he was working for a long time at the British Council, running their sort of preview room and their projection room in the film department. And I, I went down to see him a couple of times there, and we did a couple of things together down there. And then the British Council started having cutbacks and so on, and uh, Paul lost his job, unfortunately. And he was sort of wondering, oh, what, what do I do now? Because he was, you know, he was not a young man. I mean, he's, he's sort of in his early 60s now, but this this would have been probably sort of late 40s, I guess, for Paul. And he was sort of, oh, you know, what am I going to do? He's got a wife and, and young daughter. And, uh, and then he had this sort of brainwave of, why don't I sort of stage film events in around the South End area and around the sort of uh, estuary? He started doing that, and uh, he, he set up this company called The White Bus, named after the Lindsay Anderson film. Because Paul, Paul had had some dealings with uh, Lindsay Anderson's effects after he died. They all, all of Lindsay Anderson's personal belongings were sort of left at the British Council for safekeeping. Oh, so wow. Paul was one of the people sort of looking over those, and he'd always been a big Lindsay Anderson fan. So he named his company The White Bus, and they started doing events around Southend, sort of archiving film and putting on special shows. Then he started the Southend Film Festival in the summer, and um, that, that was successful. But because his first love is horror, he'd always sort of thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to do a horror festival? And that's really where Horror on Sea was born. Now, he's, he's gone with January as his date, uh, because as we, as we know from, from sort of running festivals here, they all tend to happen at once, and especially horror-themed ones all seem to happen around October time, Halloween. There's this sort of window from sort of August when you get Fright Fest through to sort of early November, and all the horror festivals happen then. And Paul thought, well, I'll, I'll avoid all that, and also I'll give people something to do after Christmas. And it's, it's just perfect. Mm. It's, it's absolutely great in that sort of bleak month of January when you've got nothing to do. Get down to South End and, and and watch two weekends of horror films. <laughs> well, when you say it like that, Daryl, <laughs> cool. So we so yes, yeah, so you've been running for many years. So probably a disclosure here, Daryl. Uh, you had a film playing at this this weekend's um, on C. I did this time. Yeah, I mean because I, I know Paul very well. Um, at the, the very first festival, uh, twenty thirteen, he asked me to do a presentation there, and I, I did a little talk on uh, an amateur filmmaker called Michael J. Murphy, who's probably worthy of a podcast all of his own, I think, sometime. But Michael was the sort of pioneer of the type of film that Paul is playing because Michael J. Murphy was making this type of amateur horror movie from the mid-1960s when he was a teenager right through to the the time that he died about uh, six or seven years ago. And what Michael was doing for all that period is now the norm in British horror movie production. He was one of the first guys to sort of go out there and do it with nothing, you know, just filming, making films with his mates, with very cheap equipment, but just getting out there doing it, not bothering about sort of submitting them for certification or trying to get them played in cinemas or anything. And what he was doing all those decades ago has now become the norm. So Paul Paul sort of asked me to do a talk on, on Michael at the first festival. And one thing he's always done and always encouraged over the years at the festival is for people to get out there and make their own films. And he loves putting on movies by his mates. It's not necessarily just because we're his mates. It's because... He recognises we're in this sort of lineage, this tradition 
that's happened in Britain of amateur filmmaking over the years and semi-professional filmmaking. There are elements of of sort of you know um, sort of cronyism and so on, but but the the films stand up. The films are good. I was about and, to say that I, when all your mates are filmmakers, it's hard not to be. And the thing is, the community at Horror on Sea is so very strong and so tight knit and so helpful. Everybody's sort of talking to each other and helping each other that you all go in and watch each other's films and you support them and you're sort of rooting for, for you know, the new film by whichever person it may be, Pat Higgins or MJ Dixon or somebody. The horror on sea sort of got its own little round of, of superstars as well. You know, with with Pat Higgins, who's a local filmmaker from from the South End area, he again has been making films for getting on for twenty years now. So he's he's something of a pioneer. He was doing this in 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 the sort of early part of the twenty first century, and and is making quite a success of it. More recently, we've had people we, we've interviewed on the podcast people like Michael Fausty, Tom Lee Rutter, people like that. People who submitted films to to Quad for Paracinema and for the Derby Film Festival have also um, had films shown at the Horror on Sea Festival. Liam Regan, who, who we were talking about earlier on uh, before we started recording today um, with his film uh, Banjo or My Bloody Banjo, uh, that played at Horror on Sea, and we we then we then bought it here, and it, it, it went down very well with a certain portion of the audience, not so well with older viewers, mm. uh, surprisingly, but you know. Um, so well, yeah, it's, it's funny with, with, with January being such a great time. Usually, Paris Cinema's in May, so it's ideal for us to send you as our little spy amongst new films and yeah, yeah. Um, cherry pick some of the best ones for Paris Cinema. It. You know, yeah. he, he doesn't mind at all that we do that. He, he likes that there's another avenue for, for promotion for his festival because mm-hmm. I do say we always give him a massive shout out, and if we show stuff that we picked up at Horror mm-hmm. on Sea, we say so. We say where it's come from. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, the festival community around the country is like that. And you see that in microcosm at Horror on Sea. If you sat in the bar at that event in Southend in the hotel, it's amazing just, just chatting to people about your film or about their films and projects even spring out of that. And then Paul, Paul sort of shows them the next year. You know, you'll have a situation where you get three filmmakers sat around having a drink and introducing themselves to each other. Before you know it, over the weekend, they formulated plans to make a film together. They then go out and shoot it in the summer, and then Paul shows it the following January. <laughs> in fact, there's um, there's a guy called Sing Lal who who sets up a um, a, a sort of old school um, video store display in the in the hotel lobby uh, or in the bar area at Horror on Sea. And what he does is mixes old videotapes, real real tapes, vintage VHS tapes, with mocked-up covers for a lot of the new films. And he sort of puts them all in between each other. And it's a great display. It's brilliant for photo ops and so on. And Paul, last year or two years ago, Paul sort of said to Lel, um, I've got an idea. You know, it's great that you do this display. It's fantastic. We can all get our photos taken in front of it. Why don't you do a compilation movie, an anthology movie with like five or six short films, get some of the, the, the key directors that, that come to Horror on Sea, get each of them to, to direct an episode and you could put it out under the banner, you know, Sing Lal's Video Tales of Terror or something like that. And they're doing it. They're shooting mm. it this year. Uh, Tom and Michael are both involved. Um, all the filmmakers from the community are involved. And 
I guess it's going to be ready for next year's festival. So it's it's so lovely to see this community spirit. I was chatting to Michael Fausty over the weekend, actually last week, and um, uh, and in in the casino, late night casino, which is next door to the hotel, which is like um, it's where everybody goes after the last movie, and you sort of stay there drinking till about four in the morning, you know. And it just extends the the, the chance to meet and, and chat and, and associate with people. Me and Michael Fausty were in there chatting, and, and we we were we were talking about punk bands actually, and talking about the whole punk movement. And and then we both suddenly it, a light bulb went on, and we realised everything we're saying about what happened in punk in the late seventies and, and post punk in the early eighties applies to what's happening at Horror on Sea. It's the same sort of communal vibe. It's the same sort of everybody help each other. It's the same thing as when punk and post-punk had these sort of regional factions where you'd get loads of great bands from Sheffield or loads of great bands from somewhere on the south coast, you know, Brighton or somewhere. And that's happening in, in this type, this level of film now particularly with Tom Lee Rutter and people like James Taylor and Baz Hancher, who have got this, this what, what, what sort of known as the Kidderminster posse. You know, who would have thought that Kidderminster would, would become a sort of focal point for, for British horror cinema in, in the 2020s? And even my film, Ouija Geist, that played at the festival this weekend, uh, was directed by John Walker, who's from Dudley and filmed in Dudley. So it's all part of that West Midlands scene. So even as an East Midlander... You know, I've I've been been sort of co-opted into that whole West Midlands film scene, and it's so exciting to be part of a sort of regional film scene, having grown up on listening to to bands who were doing that. You know, they're going to need a better name than Kidderminster Posse, though. It sounds well, like a really bad boy band uh, <laughs> from the nineties. So let's 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 try and work on something. But yeah, so so this year was a was a kind of delayed year for the yeah, festival. Yeah. So we've had a, a, obviously a pandemic year where the film was festival. The film festival was cancelled. We didn't. They didn't decide to go online. A lot of festivals went online. No, with, Paul's, Paul's old school. I think. Okay. He, he needs someone to show him how to how to do all that. And, and rather than do that, I think he just thought let's let's take a year off. You know, he's he's had his health problems as well, so it gave him a year to sort of just just relax and and recover a little bit. So, uh, and I mean, one dilemma that Paul faced with with doing that is. What he decided to do was for his 2022 festival, he just thought, well, I'm just going to use the 2021 programme. I'm not going to programme anything new. Of course, what happened in that in that sort of gap year or that gap 18 months is that lots and lots and lots of people made pandemic and COVID movies and lockdown movies, you know. So there's almost like a missing year for those people. Now, Paul, next year for 2023, of course, is going to have effectively last year's films and this year's to pick from. Is he so, always going to be a year behind now? Well, I think he, I think he'll just he'll just sort of call it on the 2023 one and say, well, what we're going to do is pick the best of the past two years rather than the best of the past year. And the festival's always a little bit fluid. And, and because people are arranging their own distri- distribution of these films, they're not going through proper distributors or anything. It's often the case that films that were made two or three years ago have still got a currency. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're still doing the rounds of the, of the lower end festival. Well, I think with this kind of a festival, I mean... I, I... 
sad to say distribution channels have dried up for films but there's, you know, there's more films being made every year yeah. than, than ever before so the distribution channels for getting those films out and about and doing the traditional route of a festival then a dvd release and i guess then now to streaming is it it's kind of like a old fa- not old-fashioned wrong word but it's kind of like an unrealistic road to go down for 95 percent of film are being made yeah, yeah so two years on a lot of these films have not got wider distribution unless they've done their own dvd releases and blu-ray releases but even then not many people are seeing them so they still have currency at festivals and they st- people are still discovering these films even yeah. two and three and four years afterwards that's that's often the case and and in, in fact the the aim of a lot of these filmmakers is simply to make a film and get it shown at horror on sea or get it into some other festival and as far as they're concerned, that's then done, and they can move on to the next one. There, there seems to be a generation that, do, A, doesn't really care about getting their films out on DVD and doesn't care about sort of having having them historically archived. And also, they're not all that bothered about about getting them into streaming services. Some, some people are, and of course, if, if you get your film on disc or you get it on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something, it's great, and, and a lot of these people do. But that doesn't seem to be the general aim. The aim seems to be get out and film. It's it's the filming process that they enjoy. And then the chance to screen the film once in a situation like Horror on Sea, where they know they're going to get an appreciative audience. No one's going to come to the, up to them in the bar and say, oh, what a load of crap, you know, that was rubbish. It looked really cheap. It was badly lit. The acting was bad. They sort of know their limitations going in. They know that they're not making um, a, a Kubrick film or whatever. That isn't the point. And um, it's showing these films to their peers sort of thing, to, to the, the people around them that, that are doing similar work elsewhere in the country. And it's, it's, it's such a great vibe. And, yeah, it's hard for, for long-term film fans and, and, and watchers of how movies are distributed to understand this this mindset that... There is now this transience, you know, there is mm. this fleeting sort of idea that, yeah, bang out a film, get it shown at horror on sea, move on to the next one. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting one because like, I think that's the, the, the cycle of how cinema's gone. You know, you have cinema, if you don't see it in the cinema, it's gone. You know, you, you're never going to see it again. Sure. And then home video came in and suddenly it's like every movie you could have and own and, and now streaming, you know, you can literally call it up whatever time of day you want. But there's a whole generation who that means that it's just devalued film yeah. in some way. So maybe that's maybe that's some of that seeping through into the consciousness. Yes, and I think the value of film by this particular generation is now seen in, in the making. It's, it, it's seen in the process of actually going out and filming rather than the, the finished product, mm. doing something with the finished product. They want a finished product and they want it to be good, but... All they then want is is the respect of like-minded people. Yeah. And that's what they get at this particular festival. And, yeah, and it's also like the, the respect of I've made a film. Yeah. Whereas yeah. like, I don't know, it's not Cahiers de Cinema, <laughs> you know, kind of like auteur theory kind sure. of thing. But it's sure. just like, you know, like you don't really know what it's like to make a film unless you've made a film mm. and you yeah. don't know the hardship it goes through and all the, all, all, just to get it over the line, just to make a terrible film. Yeah. Yeah. And you people, know? <laughs> people say these days that anyone can make a film and that, and that's true given changes in technology and so on. But it's amazing how many people are still out there who talk a lot about making films and then never actually do it. You know, yeah. these guys do it. 
and yeah. and there are a lot of them, but percentage wise, it's not all that many. And and um, you know, it's it, it is great that there, there are people like Sam Mason Bell, who's who's actually from the same sort of area as Michael J. Murphy, who I mentioned earlier. So Sam has sort of taken up Michael Murphy's lineage. He's he, he, he's sort of carrying on the tradition of this Portsmouth area. Um, low budget filmmaking and Sam has become he's sort of taken up the baton from from the the Michael Murphy generation he even works with some of Michael's actors you know people like Patrick Oliver and Steve Longhurst who've been doing this stuff for 40 years in Mike's films you know and are now involved with the new generation around around the south coast and Sam absolutely churns out films mm. you know and some of them are very good we we had one called millennial killer submitted to us which which me and you watched i know neither of us liked no. that at all did it's, we? But, no it's, it's one of those things with, with with sam's films that we he makes so many of them and we it's just not aligned right with paris cinema where we've enjoyed the one that he's made in that three month period yeah, yeah you know yeah. where we've enjoyed it but like the ethos of 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 what he's doing down there really challenged with what, with what we show at, Par- at Paris Cinema, what we want to do at Paris Cinema. It's just finding the, the right one to show at the right time. I, I know, and, and, and if he's making like three or four a year and yeah. he's involved in maybe writing all this stuff and doing episodes of, of, of web series and things like you, I mean, you don't even know with him what, what's a film and what isn't. You know, because he'll do shorts, he'll do things that are part of a series, he'll do films that are an hour long, he'll do stuff that's full feature length, you know. Mm. And and the quality sort of varies, and and he does sort of docudramas, and he does does sort of, uh, um, like, fake found footage things, and then he does more conventional movies, and he's just all over the place. But the guy obviously just loves getting out there, yeah. picking up a camera and pointing it at something. It was a real shame that we, didn't, we neither of us enjoyed Millennial Killer enough to, to select it, because that title is a million-dollar title. Oh, it's great. Millennial it's great. Killer. Oh, wow, what a title. You know, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I mean, Sam has shown other stuff at other festivals, which which I've really, really enjoyed, mm. you know. And I I don't know. I've, I've, I think I've only met Sam sort of in passing once and and uh, so i've not had a good chance to sit down and chat to him but uh i'd, I'd love to know what he thinks of his own films because i i sort of get the impression that he, he he may not actually know whether he's made a good one or not and i, I don't think that's the point with him you mm. know it, it, it's all about just getting out there and making films whether they're good or bad is almost accidental yeah. and it doesn't matter to, to Tim. It doesn't seem to matter to, to some of this generation of filmmakers. Some of them set out to make quality work. I think Tom Lee Rutter mm-hmm. has, has definitely got a, a, a vision, you know, and, and, um, and knows what, what he's about and knows what he wants to make. But a lot of these guys that are going out shooting two, three, four projects, projects a year are just doing it. They're, they're, they're getting their, their sense of achievement and fulfilment simply out of the act of, of, of making the films mm. and getting yeah. them completed, and then it's on to the next one. Yeah, absolutely. The format of the festival is at one screen mm. showing back-to-back films from 10 a.m. through till uh, midnight. Yeah, it's, after also, midnight. it's all set in a big hotel on the South End seafront, and they've got a big, big ballroom where where Paul sets up a, a indoor screen, and and it's um, the hotel seating. You know, just sure. chairs mm-hmm. sort of put out in rows every night. So yeah, they've they've got their sort of projection equipment at the back, and uh, um, it's all all done through sort of digital projection. 
which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. That's become part of the, 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 the festival lore is that, uh, you know, you never quite know whether the film's going to get through to the end or not. But uh, they, they did show a film one year that actually played on that. They showed this wonderful little short where a psycho killer was sort of stalking somebody up a, up a, 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 a sort of a street up a, a, a sort of side road. And then the film freezes and the whole audience sort of groaned, oh, not again, horror on sea. Why do the films always freeze up, you know? And it was done on purpose because what they then did was a live event where the killer from the movie disappeared off the screen as we were complaining about why is, why is he juddering on the screen? Why is he frozen? The image then disappeared and he came rushing round from the back of the screen to attack the director live. <laughs> what, a, what a great idea. And Horror on Sea often does those sort of gimmicky sort of things. Mm. They've had films shot during the weekend of the festival as well and, and then shown at 8 o'clock on the Sunday night, you know, yeah. in, in like a 48-hour challenge sort of thing. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's got that whole sort of DIY vibe to it and, you know, get shoot a film now or use or use the sort of challenges of the festival and use the the legends of the festival as part of your own movie mm-hmm. um, so yeah it's it, it's all based in this hotel in 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 south end and what paul does is on the friday saturday and sunday he divides the day up into six slots of two and a half hours each so they run from 10 o'clock in the morning through to about sort of uh, sometime after midnight and paul paul being a seasoned festival goer himself does the crucial thing he well two things he shows a feature and he always has shorts accompanying it back back to the old days of when people like me and him were going to the cinema in the 70s and 80s and you'd always get a short with the film he likes carrying on that tradition and it gives him a chance to show the work of people who aren't making features as well it gives and it gives those filmmakers a chance to say well i i can't do a 90 minute movie but i can do a two minute one and Paul gives them an opportunity to show that. The other crucial thing that he does with these two and a half hour slots, and as I say, this is as a seasoned festival goer himself, is he leaves enough time for people to get a drink and something to eat. So many festivals don't. Mm-hmm. And we all appreciate that and love that. So, and it, and it gives people a chance to chat in the bar and talk about the film they've just seen, which is where the whole community thing comes in. It's so well organised and so well planned out, and it's done on purpose. Yeah. Paul, Paul has set out to do that. Very good, very good. So uh, let's get to the films yeah, for this yeah. year. What what has stood out for you? I'm assuming you just sat and watched films all weekend. I did, yeah. Apart, <laughs> apart from I always, I always take a break on the Saturday at 3 o'clock. I miss the film at 3 o'clock every year because I go to see Pat Higgins' Masterclass, which is a wonderful lecture come stand-up comedy routine by Pat Higgins, who I mentioned Yeah, tell, tell us about those, because they, they, he's been doing that those kind of gigs for years now. Yeah, he's done about eight or nine at the festival, and it's always done in a little side room away from the main hall. And Pat usually gets an audience of, of a few dozen people in there, and often it's, it's young filmmakers or people that are striving to make projects of their own and pat's great because he 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 is a guru you know in in this scene he's been doing it as i say since about 2003 2004 so getting on for 20 years he's managed to get distribution for some of his films worldwide you know he's got films out in in america and so on he's made films with wonderful titles like killer killer and hell bride and his latest one that he's working on is called let me get this title right it's called 
power tool cheerleaders versus the boy band of the screeching dead <laughs> so that's that's coming out soon so uh, in fact we saw a trailer for it at the weekend pat has got sort of limited resources but um he he's probably best known and he'd hate me saying this but uh, if pat's listening to this you know what i'm going to say man He's, he's best known for a film called Strippers vs. Werewolves, which he didn't direct, but he did write the script for. And I, I think our pal uh, Dominic Burns is, is in that, isn't he? I'm, I'm sure he's in. I, I think he, he, he did a sort of I bit can't remember. Yeah. Was, there was a lot of those versus films knocking yeah, around around yeah. that period, and I'm, he was I'm, in one of them. I'm pretty, I think, sure, pretty I sure that Dom's in this playing like a businessman in, in, in the strip club. But, oh, okay. Uh, um, but yeah, Dom Dom does loads of that sort of stuff anyway. So uh, so Pat Pat is has been involved with with films at that sort of level. But he's he's great. He's he really has got the sort of demeanour and the delivery of a stand up comedian. He does interaction with the audience as well. He he gets us to fill fill in things, and and he 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 has things where you can sort of send responses on Twitter while he's actually doing the talk. So behind him on a screen, you you get sort of your responses coming up and sort of word clouds and things like that. I mean, one thing we did this weekend was he just asked everyone to name their favourite horror movie and we and he said, by in two hours' time at the end of the talk, we'll know what the greatest horror film of all time is and it turned out to be The Thing. <laughs> okay. And what was happening, of course, behind him on the screen was every time anyone sort of tweeted something and a new film title the list of films sort of shifted behind him. So we were sort of responding to that. And fans of the thing were, were sort of madly voting for it 20 times to, to get it up to number one, you know. But he was doing things with his... So life. not a legally binding vote. Oh, then, no, no, no. no. <laughs> but it, it, we, we, all, we all accepted the result at the end, though. Um, and another thing that Pat did at his talk was to... Um, again, he was applying methods similar to... to someone we did a podcast about recently, Robert Rodriguez, he was, sort of, he was saying, right, if, if everyone in this room was going to make a film, write down on a piece of paper and then hand them in to, to my assistant and we'll sift through them. Write down what you can get me for free, you know, and what prop can you get? What location can you get? Can you get an actor or a person or a group of people? Just write them all down and we'll sift through them all and see what sort of movie we might come out with. And somebody actually put down that they could get hold of Rod Stewart. <laughs> so when we were then writing our film, he got us all to write a film pitch. And I think I think 90% of them had, had Rod Stewart and East 17 in them because some, someone knew a member of East 17 and somebody claimed they could actually get Rod Stewart for free. So we got all these horror movie scenarios involving Rod Stewart and East 17. But uh, it was it was crazy, crazy crazy hour and a half and um, some movies just don't need to be made <laughs> i know i know but if it was made paul would pull it on at horror on scene <laughs> yeah, but yeah we'll, we'll get on to some of the titles that i saw anyway. yeah yeah so yeah. yeah so it's obviously a packed program i mean i'm just looking here one two three six films a day from the look yeah, of it yeah. so that's 12 and, and, and 18 films two, two or three shorts with each, each one film well, yeah, yeah yeah so um, what what they did this year they've sort of taken a tip from us at paracinema they actually showed in the shorts programs they showed one or two sort of longer form ones, which is okay. something you've you've tried to encourage. Here. Yeah, I mean it's it's one of those one of those mid length films. Is it's, it's still a, a burgeoning genre, a burgeoning uh, category in yeah. film festivals? But... And it was nice to see that the filmmakers are responding to that, and that Paul was getting submissions from people that were making stuff that was like 40, 45, mm. 50 minutes long. Well, you think you look at you look at like films being made. I mean, the new Batman film, the running time has just been announced. That is two hours fifty five minutes. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. features are becoming longer. Yeah, so why yeah. shouldn't shorts? You know, yeah, why, no, why, yeah. you know, the, the, the standard standard for features last year seemed to be 155 minutes. <laughs> I, I saw half a dozen films that were 155 yeah. minutes. I think that's something that's to do with two hours. I think know? that's something to do. I mean, I, particularly studio pictures. I know there was, there was a period where it was two hours. It was two hours thirty three minutes mm. was the standard because at that point it goes into the studio's hands for edit. Yeah, yeah. Whereas a lot of filmmakers like Fincher and people like that, at two hours 33, if they deliver a two hour 33, the studio is not going to interfere with the edit. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's no way to make a movie. No, and Paul Cockgrove would hold no truck with that yeah. whatsoever. You know, he, he does occasionally show longish features, but I think the longest one over, over the horror on Sea Weekend uh, would have been 104 minutes, if I remember rightly. Most of them come in at about 75, 80, 85, you know. And that's that's what you want this type of film to be, you know. It's driving length, you know. Yeah. It's old, 19... This is the length that 1970s films of this type were. And we, we, we sort of still want that. It's perfect for Paul's programme. And it gives you a chance to get something to eat and drink afterwards, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, the, the audience hit this year was a film called Manfish, which played on the Saturday night. Man and fish. Yeah, yeah. It was shot in Canvey Island, so it's a lo- local one to the South End area, shot just across the, the estuary. A documentary filmmaker called Mark Williams was, was present on the day, and he, he actually said at the festival, he said, uh, this is the best thing to come out of Canvey Island since Dr. Feelgood. Um, he, he's not <laughs> wrong. Manfish is great. It's, it's a Canvey Island horror-on-sea version of The Shape of Water. It's absolutely extraordinary. Is it a feature or shot? It's a feature. It runs about 85 minutes. So the idea is that this this sort of creature from the Black Lagoon or sea devil type creature emerges from from the estuary, the Thames estuary, and um, uh, comes up onto the shore, is discovered by this gang of a group of local gangsters and drug dealers uh, in, including um, there's there's one woman involved with them who's who's married to a bit of a sort of milk toast, a bit of a sort of wimpy type husband, you know, and the gangsters all sort of laugh at him and wonder what she's doing with him, and one of them's having an affair with her, and there's like this guy who's like this wimp who's who's on the side, you know, and they get him to do menial tasks like doing all the drug wraps for them and things like that, you know, and he has this sideline where he he sort of makes ornamental boxes with by gluing shells to them like jewelry boxes that he then sells at the bottom of his drive you know so it's this weird sort of makeshift diy plot going on and then you throw the creature from the black lagoon into it (laughs) and what what's going to happen next you know so these people are involved in all this drug dealing and sort of small time crime have suddenly got the creature from the black lagoon in their bath and the wimp forms a sort of association with the creature and you get into this whole sort of shape of water-like relationship taking place in a bathroom on Canvey Island. <laughs> it's wonderful. The audience just really, really responded to it. It's really cheap. The monster costume looks as though it cost about £1.50, but it's exactly what the Horror on Sea audience wanted. And um, I don't know that a, a, a modern audience would even consider it a horror film as such. It's a bit like The Shape of Water in that respect as well, in that... It's got monsters in it, and it's got the monster killing people in it. But the focus of the story is isn't is about relationships, and it's about characters. I, I actually thought it was better than The Shape of Water, <laughs> and it must have been made for about a hundredth of a hundredth of the budget of that. 
Wow, wow, better than The Shape of Water. And it, 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 yeah. it went down a storm at the first weekend. It was everybody's favourite film. Sort of in, do you if, think it's done a poll? I think it would have come out number one. Do you think it's one of those films that like sort of like appealed to both ends of the horror and the audience? The sort of like people who love traditional classic horror movies and the DIY ethos of, yeah. of modern seems to smash those two together in an un- unholy mix. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell I'll tell you the one thing that that isn't seen as as a necessity in horror on sea movies, and that's gore. You know, right. pe- people might expect that the sort of blood and gut side of things would be a big appeal to, to this crowd. And, and it is when, you know, some of the films have it and we, we, we love it, but it's not like a prerequisite mm. at all. And it, films like Manfish seem to get a better response than the films where, where people are sort of having their limbs chopped off. Pe- people like those, those sort of nice, quirky little films mm. uh, be- because I, I think they, a, a lot of people are sat in the audience watching the films one after the other. And with a lot of them, I think they're thinking, yeah, this is great, I'm enjoying it, but I could go home and make that. And I think something like Manfish comes along, and I think us in the audience are thinking, you know, I, I'm not sure I could make this. I think some real imagination's gone into it. And there's there's a level to it that that is a peculiar talent. Mm. You know, it's a particular point that this filmmaking team have reached and they've 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 achieved something here that is isn't run of the mill you know it stands out above the crowd yeah i guess when you're making low budget movies it's uh, gore is expensive you know special gore effects are are expensive so having 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 other areas to having said that there was another film on on the saturday called uh, beyond fury and mm-hmm. it, it's not really a horror film, but it, it fitted right into the ethos. It's just the, 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 the jelly type yeah, yeah, inspired yeah. one. Made by a guy called Darren Ward. And again, Darren's been doing this stuff since the early 90s. You know, I, I remember seeing his stuff on VHS in about 1993. You know, he did a film called Power, Power Il Diavolo in about 1994, which, which he distributed himself on video. And that was, that was an attempt to do a sort of English giallo and um, he's still got that Italian uh, sort of thing running through his veins, you can tell, because he's done this film called Beyond Fury, and it's the third part of an action movie trilogy that's like a tribute to the Italian uh, Poliziotesky movies. Oh, right, okay. And he even got to John Morgan, uh, Giovanni uh, Lombardo Radice, Radice to, yeah. to star in, in his film, alongside Gary Baxter, who was the star of Tom Rutter's uh, Day of the Stranger. He, play, he played the devil in Day of the Stranger. And Gary is one of the superstars of Horror on Sea again. Gary wasn't there this year, certainly at the first weekend. But when he appeared on screen, the audience went mad. Mm-hmm. And, and he's playing... Giovanni's son as well in the movie and they look great together they look like father and son and and again it's it's a great sort of bloody gory gangster movie lots of gunfire lots of people having their throats cut and so on loads of violence wall to wall from start to finish so not re- not a horror film as such but very much in the tradition and it's sort of at the upper end because Darren's been doing this for so long it's sort of at the upper end of of, of the market this mm. look almost like a proper movie you know it's something that you you if, if you saw it in a multiplex you you wouldn't be thinking oh this this looks a bit cheap and, and horrible you'd, you'd buy it you know yeah. you think oh yeah this this is this is a good low budget movie it deserves to be on screen 10 of of, of 
um, the showcase or whatever. Mm. Just, just, just to, to clarify, Daryl doesn't mean that these movies are not proper movies. They are all proper movies. Uh, I assume that's oh, what you mean. Oh, yeah. Yes, I, I, these are all, all proper all movies. Proper yeah. movies. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking here from the point of view of general audience. Uh, yeah. your, your average punter would go to horror on sea and wouldn't have a clue what they were watching. But I think if they saw something like Darren's film, they'd sort of identify with that. That they. Yeah. they they'd understand that, whereas they might not understand something like Manfish quite so easily. No, no. The, the other, the, my own favourite film of the weekend, and this is typical of Horror on Sea, this movie's got such a convoluted history. Uh, it was made by a director called Jeff Harmer, and it was called Hosticide, and it's absolutely brilliant. It's a film about a businessman who's involved in some dodgy pyramid scheme involving water filters or something, and he works in this office where he fancies one of the women who's gone on on leave and the the younger girl in the office fancies him and he doesn't like her. So you've got this relationship thing going on, like this soap opera type thing. And then on the side, he's a serial killer and he he goes out um, sort of hiring prostitutes and then killing them. And he records all of this on a video diary. So it's very similar to uh, Kevin Howarth in Julian Richards' film, The Last Horror Movie, oh, yeah. which, which we love. Yeah, great and It's movie. got that same sort of vibe to it. And it's got an actor called Paul Kelly in the lead. And his performance is very much like Kevin's. It's absolutely riveting. And you're just watching this guy sort of slowly unravel across the course of a movie. It's, it's, it's brilliant. Um, I like the sort of sleazy aspect to it as well because that that took someone like me right back to the days of filmmakers like Derek Ford and Dick Randall in the 1980s making things like Don't Open Till Christmas and Urge to Kill and and the real sort of low end of British exploitation in the 70s and 80s, you know, that was sort of really the sort of underground of, of that time. And I thought Jeff Harmer really sort of achieved that. The film's got a sort of sheen of class to it as well, which which makes the sleazy elements all the more sleazy. Um, but the convoluted history of this film is it was made in, um, I think it was made in 2012. It was made 10 years ago. And it was made under the title Addict. And it was shot, it was, it was graded and released in black and white. And what we saw at Horror on Sea was now called Hosticide, and it was in colour, and it was being touted as a new film. They've rebadged it? He'd, he'd, he'd simply, he's re-promoting it. It's right. exactly the same film, but he's, he's regraded it into colour, and, and he's decided that, oh, you know, everyone ignored it when it was called Addict. It, I think it deserves a, a, a place in, in people's okay. consciousness. I'm going to re-promote it and sell it as a new film. And it worked for me. I, I didn't know. I was chatting to MJ Simpson, mm-hmm. uh, our, our, our great pal from Leicester, and, and a great supporter of, of, of this type of thing. MJ had never been to Horror on Sea before, which is amazing because he, he's, he's like the man when it comes to 21st century British horror and sort of archiving it and recording it. Uh, but he he was there actually selling copies of his books on on the the, the new wave of British horror, and um, I got chatting to MJ sort of in one of the intervals, and I was describing Hosticide to him, and I mentioned water filters to him as part of the plot, and a bell uh, sort of rang in his head, and he said water filters. He said I've seen a film about water filters. He said addict addict, and I said I I, 
I think the director mentioned that and said it's the, it's the same film. And MJ had seen this some years earlier in black and white. So, But what you can also get at horror on sea occasionally is someone actually... Jeff, Jeff has simply regraded his film to colour and, re, and renamed it, but it's the same movie. But you also get at horror on sea people sometimes re-editing a film. Sam Mason Bell or somebody might, might do this. They might pull a film from five years ago, maybe shoot a few new scenes for it, add those to it, re-edit it, maybe give it a new title, maybe not, and bung it back up on the screen. It's it's very similar to what directors like Jess Franco were doing in, mm. in the exploitation world of the 70s, you know. Or one, one very common thing that horror on sea is that you'll go there one year and you'll see a supporting short and then two years later, you'll go back to the festival and that short's been expanded into a feature mm. and you see the feature. So filmmakers are constantly tinkering with their work and screening shorts or making part of a feature and then running out of money or, or just losing interest in it and going off and, do, and doing something else and then coming back to it a few years later and thinking, oh, I might as well finish that off now. And you've already seen 15 minutes of it, you know, as a preview at one festival. And suddenly you're seeing the whole thing and you're thinking, haven't I seen this before? <laughs> or oh, this looks familiar, you know. And so, yeah, it's, it's all very fluid and it's so difficult to keep up with what's going on on the scene. You know, you almost have to keep careful notes in the ledger or have like a sort of pattern, you know, like, like detectives do in TV shows, you know, have this chart on the wall sort of charting all this stuff and, and trying to figure out this short turns into this feature movie. This film's a re-edited version of that one from t- 10 years ago. You know, it's crazy. It must be, it must be, obviously we talked about this earlier on, but like the, the sort of like mentality of archiving films and, and, and just, being the historian types uh, that a lot of the gen- your generation and my generation were, where it's like, okay, it's out on DVD. That's the definitive yeah. version. All that's gone out the it's window now. It's, yeah, it's, it's it, absolutely. It must be impossible. like OCD for those yeah. people. Must be going yeah. crazy. There, there are people out there making films that don't even know about horror on sea, and are just making films for their mates on YouTube. They bung them up online. Mm. Once all their mates have watched them and their aunties watch them, they, they delete it. Yeah. And we, yeah. we there, there are films out there we never even know about, mm. and we'd love to know about them, but those days of actually being able to compile complete checklists of, of films, I, I still try, but it's a, it's a losing battle. You know, People like me, David Dent, MJ Simpson, are all out there trying to sort of archive this stuff, but I don't think anyone of the generation that's making it is interested in archiving it, even no. their own films. You know? No, they might They might in 10, 15 years' time, though. Who knows? Maybe they'll look back and go, actually, that was a very important period. We need to go back into that and delve back into that deeper. It could be, but I think we're already at the stage where we're losing stuff. Mm. You know, there, there, there will have been films shot in 2022 that, mm. that now don't exist. You know, in the last three yeah, weeks, yeah, yeah. I think there, people will have made films... And deleted them. Well, on that depressing note, is there anything else that you saw that you wouldn't flag up to our listeners? Yeah, there's a very good short film I enjoyed called Arachne. I think it was from mm. Germany. And um, it was about seven, eight minutes long and um, wordless, no dialogue. So, you know, it could play to an international audience. And it was almost like watching a ballet. It was brilliant. The, the plot was a guy gets lured into a sort of disused sort of subway or or 
you know, sort of underground passage by this alluring young woman who who then turns out to be some kind of female spider creature. She's got this great sort of spider makeup on her face. And um, she evokes the idea of her being a spider with coloured material and sort of like silks and things. She's sort of waving about in the air and doing this incredible sort of uh, dance routine around this guy and wrapping these silks around him. And then his own girlfriend sort of comes looking for him to try and rescue him. And she turns out to be one of these spider creatures as well and has to battle the other one. And it just turns into this. You you could stage this live in in a theatre. And it was great to see someone from a a European country making something that was accessible to audiences all over the world. And that had this sheen of quality and sheen of, of class to it as well where you, you could show that at Sadler's Wells or somewhere, you know, on stage, and, and it would it would fit in. But it also fits in at Horror on Sea. Mm. Great. Lovely. Well, check that one out. Maybe that's something we look about getting at Paris in a minute. I hope so. Yeah. It'd be a great show here, yeah. Cool. Lovely. Thank you very much. That's well, something slightly different for this this week's um, Cine Lit, but uh, a, a hearty recommendation for Horror on Sea. So if you are maybe next year now, if you are at a loss of what to do in January, maybe head down to Southend and check do out it. Horror on Sea. As ever, please like us on Facebook, uh, check out our Patreon if you feel so inclined, and sign up for an extra podcast a month, and we will see you again in a couple of weeks' time. Take care.